Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another Pink Show where we talk about what's going on in the mountain biking world. I'm Mike Levy, and today's episode is all about trying to reinvent the mountain bike, or parts of it at least, and failing miserably. Now, we've got a long list of stuff to go through, but to give you an idea, Casimir, do you remember those one-piece thermoplastic tri-spoke wheels from Spin in the 90s, or those bladed carbon wheels from Spinergy that also disappeared? Yeah, I definitely remember the Spinergy ones more than the Spin. I remember both of them, but Spinergy was pretty big. They are super popular back east. And I remember doing a cross-country race and seeing a guy step through his Spinergy wheel and get those carbon bladed spokes like pretty far up his thigh oh shit did, did it cut him i had like he had spandex on but i'm sure he had some cuts on there because it was pretty far oh lord yeah, so it's a wheel That's... you could step through so <laughs> since then i've never really wanted one but at the time before that day i really thought they looked cool and they're carbon fiber so they're futuristic not good not good i've also got betas ryan palmer here with me who has been around for a while as well ryan you've no doubt seen those things but do you know what works really really freaking well spokes work really well for a ton of reasons ryan did you ever ride those spin or spinergy wheels you know i never owned a set but i had a buddy who had a pair of spins on a 1994 cannondale super v yes and he also had magura like the magura hydraulic rim brakes on there it was it was a pretty fancy bike at the time (laughs) i mean those wheels i for for some reason i don't actually don't really know why they haven't caught on by now like It's like we have the carbon technology. It's so much more advanced than it was back then. Like those spin wheels were so interesting because they still had an aluminum rim because disc brakes didn't exist yet. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, they were cool at the time. Was there a product from back then that you wanted so bad as a young mountain biker, Ryan, but now you realize it was absolute trash? Yeah, I think I I really wanted the... um, the kuka cranks mm-hmm. i don't think they were actually trash but it was like one of those unnecessary like whatever they were pink anodized or purple anodized or whatever i i want like back then all the ando parts were super popular and i just remember like really badly wanting those and i was always stuck with like you know shimano lx what else do you need in life other than purple cranks right Cass? <laughs> yeah. what about you what did you I, want i wanted that ibis bow tie Remember that thing? Oh, oh yeah. Wow. yeah. <laughs> we, we had one hanging in our shop that I worked at for so many years because it was crazy expensive. Tie, full suspension, like just a, it's just a URT, right? Yeah. Can yeah. you describe yeah. that thing so people know what it is? I mean, it's hard to try to put in words. Basically, everyone should just Google Ibis bow tie, but it's a really cool looking titanium full suspension bike that didn't work well, but for 14 year old me, I thought it would be amazing because it was, just looked great. And, uh, yeah, I wanted that, but obviously never got it because that was all my money that I would Kaz, ever have. Yeah. But when you stand up, the suspension firms up and it's efficient. It's what efficient. could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, you just sit down <laughs> for the downhills and stand for the climbs and you're all set. Yeah. Titanium flex stays. Yeah. yeah. And it was like long travel for the time. Mm-hmm. I, rem- I, don't, I can't remember what it was, but it was like f- at least four inches of travel, I feel yeah. like. It was like a long travel flex. Yeah, was it like. John Castellano designed it? Is that the yep. guy's name? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. For me, cool. I just wanted suspension, period. And then I remember I got a a giant ATX 980, and it had a RockShox, RockShox Quadra 21R fork on the front. <laughs> and I remember just being, like, blown away. But I also live in BC, and it rains, like, every 20 minutes. 
And I think within the first week I got it, it filled with water and stopped working. And I realized that you had to store the bike upside down so the water drained out so the fork would work. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not ideal. Anyways, let's move on to some more recent things. Kaz, we have a new intense high pivot downhill bike. Can you tell me all about it? So this thing keeps getting teased. It seems like every day, not just every week. There's all kinds of intense prototypes floating around, but this one seems like the one that the racers will more than likely end up at the first World Cup stop of the season on. Um, before we had the bikes had a dual link layout, but this one has a high pivot four bar with a giant rocker arm. It's like the, one of the biggest rocker arms that I've seen since Ellsworth. Um, and then the shock is kind of tucked a little bit. I don't bit think into that's a good thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's not the prettiest bike in my mind, but you know, if it goes fast, that's what matters for these things. But, um, yeah, it's definitely different. It kind of has like, like I said, the shock kind of sits in a recess in the, in the down tube. Yeah. High pivot. So it's got kind of current trends going on. Kaz, do you think Gwyn's going to win on this thing? Is he going to, he's had a, he's had a, a few bleak years. But maybe he'll come back. Personally, I I don't. But that's I mean, there's plenty of Gwen fans, and I'm a fan of what he's done for the sport and things. But I feel like the young guns now are just it doesn't matter the bike. Like the young kids are so fast that it's gonna be hard for him to get back in there. I wouldn't I wouldn't count him out, but uh, he's not on my fantasy team. Mm, he's on my team. Gwen for the win. All right. Well, moving on from intense, we've got go over to Italy where Dionis was bought by the investment firm Carlisle. And so we've been seeing all kinds of brand acquisitions the last year or so. It seems like mountain biking's hot. And so these companies are trying to cash in. If you haven't heard of Carlisle, they're worth $6.4 billion. So not a small company. And they say they're going to focus on U.S., China uh, sales, and as well as doing some direct consumer things. So we'll see what happens with Denise. They're, I feel like they're a company that kind of comes and goes in the mountain bike world. They're popular sometimes and less so other times. Priority number one, redesign that goddamn visor. <laughs> Definitely need to get rid of the lettuce visor. <laughs> that needs some work. But Carl, if you're listening, do a new visor, Carl. <laughs> and we've got another company buying another company with SRAM bought Velocio clothing. Uh, Velocio is more of a high-end road brand, and they're starting to make some mountain bike clothes. And so it's kind of a just another addition to SRAM's portfolio. They also bought Hammerhead Computers and Time Pedals recently. So it's their third acquisition. Pretty soon you'll be able to get, I guess, kind of all SRAM everything for your bike, right? They just need yeah, that's the goal. They, yeah, what's left? They need some helmets and some... Frames? Yeah, they would need frames, but yeah. Do they have pedals? Well, or tires? Time pedals. They have time pedals. They don't have, oh, yeah, they don't right. have tires yet. But either way, they're expanding their expanding their reach. And Velocio says that their supply chain, manufacturing, and product design will remain independent and not fold into SRAM's manufacturing arm. So they can kind of keep, hopefully, keep things the same, but have the backing of SRAM. And it's SRAM's first foray into soft goods. And on that note, we did have a good comment where <laughs> Pink Bike user DreamLink87 said, first foray into soft goods, tell that to my reverb. Ayo. Ayo. <laughs> Funny guy. And moving on, we also have SRM, not SRAM. This is SRM, so a different company. They've launched a $1,500 platform pedal power meter. So if you're rocking around on your free ride bike and had trouble and want to know your power output, this is available. Um, they say it's plus or minus 2% accuracy, 30 hour battery life. You can swap the battery or sorry, you can swap out the body or the axles if they're damaged, or you can just buy one pedal for $1,200. So it's $300 <laughs> savings. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's a little confusing who this is for. I mean, I guess the BMX world, but I think that crank mounted power meters would be the easier way. I'm not really sure. 
Don't most BMX riders clip in these days? Yeah, yeah, I thought so. So I don't really know who it's for. Maybe Slopestyle is getting way more competitive than we thought. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I mean, to be fair to SRM, if they already have the axles, it's probably not difficult to source or design and have somebody make your own pedal bodies. Yeah, you could just slide it in yeah. and it would yeah, just see if they sell, I guess. Yeah, because they are the same axles that they use for those X-Power pedals that we've used in the past. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine, like, unless, are we totally blanking here? Are we being stupid? I just don't, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, everyone racing is clipping in, like, all disciplines. So I don't know why you would need power. Like, you, you would want to train on what the way that you race. Like, you're not going to train on flat pedals and then clip in maybe yeah. you you're a delivery person and you take your deliveries like super freaking serious yeah you need to be in zone three <laughs> for those eight hour delivery days or something. i don't know maybe triathletes will start just using the same shoes for the whole thing that way they, don't, <laughs> they can like swim in the same shoes and run in the same shoes and then they'll have their that's power a big time move. saver yeah and they won't they won't fall over in the transition maybe yeah exactly way quicker transition times the... i don't because I, th- I i remember you telling us a story when we we're in tucson about you entering a triathlon or something and and saving time on the transfers yeah i did a i did a duathlon years ago and it was just a was it run bike run and so i just wore the same shoe i put flat pedals on my mountain bike and then just used the same shoes and ran in them and then it saved so much time because everyone's trying to get their <laughs> clipless shoes in and i was like oh whatever i'll just keep doing this so i definitely moved up way far in the the rankings because of that tactic i'm a genius Lovely. What, what would be worse riding in running shoes or running in clipless shoes running definitely clipless the latter. Shoes. Yeah, yeah it's not that hard to ride in like you know soft whatever running shoes it's not that bad but <laughs> yeah, yeah that's fair yeah in other news we had owens released their new rxf 34 m2 downcountry fork that's a mouthful and they have had the rx f34 before but this is version 2.0 so it's basically entirely new even though the name's the same you can get it with 120 or 130 millimeters of travel and it's 29 inches only so definitely a competitor for the fox 34 it's air sprung it doesn't use olin's twin tube damper that we see in some of their other forks just to save weight and it's priced at 1180 us dollars so right up there with that same kind of high-end fork this thing seems interesting to me it's it's way lighter so to be fair the old rxf had way more travel cas like 150 or more millimeters of travel i don't know so this thing is obviously meant to be way lighter but olin's is known for their twin tube damper this fork doesn't have it and in the article it says i think dan roberts wrote it they save like Uh, around seb wrote it it. sorry seb they they save around like maybe 50 grams on the damper to me like if i'm buying olin's I'm buying it because of that twin tube damper and the air spring and all that stuff. I don't know. It seems seems kind yeah, of weird. Yeah, but why does he? I mean, I don't think you'll. If they can make it work just as well or feel pretty good, I mean, it's only 120 or 130 mils of travel. I don't know if you need fancy yeah. twin tube damping there. And if it, yeah. if it, I mean, like, think of how well a you know, like a Fox 34 feels great. That's a regular, non a non twin tube damper. So yeah, I in the past I've said the less travel that you have, the better it should be. But I don't know if that's super defendable, to be honest. I'm not too sure. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to say weight and things, all the dials. I don't know. I, mean, I I like to have it at least be of similar damping quality. Like the, that. That's why I really like the Fox 34 grip too, because it mm-hmm. feels very similar in the damping performance. You know, as the 36 or the 38 with those same dampers. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. and and with Olin's, I, I've always kind of felt like their stuff's a little overdamped. So maybe the monotube design will be not overdamped. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. we got uh, yeah. Sebstat has one for a longer term review. He's got an uh, YT Izzo, I think. So yeah, I'll have to see cool. how he 
how he fares with that pretty soon here. All right, we'll wrap up the news with the uh, anomaly switch grade saddle angle adjuster review. Matt Beer has been on this contraption for a while. Basically, it replaces the top um, top bracket of your seat post, and it allows you to adjust your adjust your seat angle on the fly. You can go negative 10, 0, or positive 12 degrees. So basically, if you're going to go up a, a steep hill, you can tilt the saddle down. And then if you're going to go down the hill, you can tilt the saddle up to kind of get it more out of the way. It goes for 284 Canadian dollars. And Matt Beer, had it, he, he liked it. He said it was clean and effective component that maximizes matching the angle of the saddle to the functional post height. And it said when he went back to a regular traditional clamp, he kind of noticed that he, he was kind of missing it. So what do you guys think, Levy? You can get one of these for your gravel bike? <laughs> Stop bringing up my gravel bike, guys. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, Matt really liked it. I feel like it sounds kind of silly. Like, I get the idea. You're adjusting the angle of your seat to best suit whatever height you're that it's at. But I've never felt like I needed it. I don't know, Palmer. Yeah, I, I mean, it's 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 interesting. I, I I don't feel like I need it. But on the beta side, we have two contributors who have run this thing, um, and they actually argue about. One of them really likes it, and the other one finds it to just be sort of useless. So I think it's it really does come down to individual and like maybe even where you ride and stuff like that. But I, I don't feel the necessary to adjust my saddle height for cl- climbs or descents. And that's the specialized tried to make that post that sort of did it, the dropper post that did the it, woo. like yeah. automatically the woo, and that did not catch on. Yeah, which yeah. is kind of a topic of you know our podcast today. Yeah. This week's Pink Bike Podcast is presented by RXR Protect. There's no doubt that mountain biking is a high-risk sport, but that doesn't mean that serious injuries can't be avoided or, at the very least, made less severe. RXR's compartmented air cushion offers highly affected shock absorption. Since it's always inflated, unlike a car's airbag, it dissipates and absorbs the energy produced from violent crashes by dispersing it throughout a system of small internal air pockets. You can see RXR's latest technology in action on their athletes as well as their full product range at rxrprotect.com. Huh. Kaz, have you ever seen one of these? Uh, Not in real life, I don't think, no. But yeah, it's got a little air valve on it. It's like Reebok pump, but for your your chest protector. Yeah, I I to be honest with you, everybody, I just saw this ad read now, and I have no I had no idea about this product. But I feel like if I'm doing an ad read, they should have to send us a product and we give it a try because that actually sounds pretty cool. It looks cool. Yeah. What kind of tests should we do with that thing, Kaz? I don't know. I'll just punch you really hard and see if you feel it. <laughs> Kaz's <laughs> dream come true, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we get one for your face too. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) we're gonna move on to questions, and the first one is from Jimsjens, otherwise known as JMSJNS. He's angry about some words that are being used, particularly quiver. He says, "When did the bike marketing industry?" It's a whole separate industry. It's the marketing industry. Decide (laughs) to start calling an individual's collection of bikes a quiver. He says, this term is most often used when talking about a quiver killer, which seems to describe a great all-around bike. He goes on to say that he believes the term is borrowed from ski, possibly the surf industry, where it describes a collection of recreational equipment as a quiver, and it makes sense. He's arguing it doesn't make sense in the mountain bike world. I don't know. I mean, 
There's only so many ways to describe this stuff. Yeah, get angry. Like, I mean, to be fair, I'd say it's rare that we ever use the term quiver killer these days. Like that was tossed around a bit, but like I feel like it's not even in our vocabulary almost. Yeah, like that 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 was kind of a it's become like it's kind of a banned word for us. Like we really try hard not to use it. And it was it's kind of a peeve of mine is as far as like why would we expect people to have a a quiver of bikes? Bikes are expensive. Like a lot of people don't have more than one bike, you know? So I don't know, just I feel like it like to assume that you have like that everybody has like a bunch of bikes is kind of uh, a little bit pretentious yeah but even saying like but even the use of the word taking the quiver killer cliche out of the way just using the word quiver seems fine like that is having multiple yeah. things that you're going to use like they're we could say fleet like this is add this to yeah, your fleet. fleet like i don't know people i get so bent out of shape about words it's it kind of it's entertaining to me like what is it acoustic bike that somebody got mad about oh, don't say that yeah, yeah don't they get say so that. mad and it's like it's just words like if these are the things that are setting you off on the internet i feel bad because there yeah. are worse words out there, but either way, go, uh, go for a ride. Yeah. J M S J N S. We don't tend to use this word very much. Feel free to call us out if we say quiver killer too often, but I'd say if you look back in the last few years, it's pretty rare. You'd find it anywhere. But what, what other words are banned for you guys? Palmer, what words, what's a couple words you refuse to use? I read recently, you always write climbs like a goat. I know that <laughs> you write that Me? in every review. Ne- oh yeah, totally. I try to put that one in everywhere. <laughs> like a scalded cat, yeah. like a scalded cat. My favorite one is Mike Ferentino's. He says, uh, climbs like a homesick angel. Oh yeah. Mm, that's pretty good. And I've never used it because it's his, but, um, but I, I really love that one. Yeah. What about you, Kaz? Um, Any words that you refuse to use? Not really. I mean, yeah, like obviously like the climbs, like a goat, like the overt cliches like that, but yeah, that's about it. I mean, I try not to be too, too many just straight up cliches so overall just i can't think of anything off the top of my head though i'm blanking we could probably have a whole podcast about cliches but yeah i have mine is i have one that really makes me angry for some reason and it's the word biking instead of riding <laughs> and i like going see, biking. but i'm behind the times on this one because yeah. everybody now says biking or like i'm a biker which yeah. i think about leather clad harley riders when you say biker but we're just taking it over from the Hells Angels. Apparently we're we're bikers now. Yeah. <laughs> Suck it, Hells Angels. Yeah, Suck it. it. <laughs> we're bikers, too. Let's, let's see if we can win a battle with the Hells Angels. See who wins that one. Uh, I remember they uh, came to town. When I, I don't know if you're... Yeah, in Gunnison, there was yeah. a huge uh, Harley rally when we were in college. Together. Yeah, it was like big news. Everybody like, had to be prepared for the Hells Angels to come to town. And then you just came and they were like super friendly and they played softball with everybody. Yeah, they played softball amazing. and stuff. Well, they're all doctors and lawyers now, aren't they? <laughs> they seem pretty rowdy, yeah, some of them. They're, but yeah, I think yeah. Harleys are expensive. They cost more than e-bikes. All right, let's move on. Next question is from Feldy Bikes. Uh, He goes on to say two of the last three field tests, according to his memory, have been in the desert. And from this podcast, this is apparently the only time you ride hardtails, he says. Hardtails plus rocky trails in the desert seems like a double double whammy of pain. He wants to know if we hate ourselves or if it's just a cruel joke from whoever plans the field tests. Both, (laughs) Feldy Bikes. It's both. (laughs) Kaz? Why Why are we always in the desert in the winter? It's a pretty obvious reason. Yeah, it's warm and dry, so we can deal with some cactus and some rough trails if it's warm and dry. Um, yeah, back home is, at that time of year is not usually ideal for riding any type of bike, at least for on camera and, and yeah, looking good. Yeah, I don't know. Hardtails work well in the desert. They work the same as they would like back home where it's rough too. 
I, I'd argue I didn't look very good in the desert either, Kaz, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, it's training camp. It's like spring training. We start off with, with this, and then you'll, by the end of the year, you're going to be looking good. Okay, uh, last question here. It's from Oz Frenchie Palmer. He wants to know why bike companies don't offer more flexibility in the build of their bikes. And I'm going to assume that he's referring to like at the time of purchase, customizing the build. We, we do see some brands do this, but why don't we see more of it? Oh, I, I, that's I, that's pretty complicated. It probably gets into stuff I don't know a ton about, but you know, the, basically where bikes are assembled, there's like, you know, there, pe- there are manufacturers who manufacture the frames and all the parts and stuff, and then all that stuff gets sent to a different place, an assembler to be assembled, and those are often in Asia too. And people and product managers like pick a certain spec, and then people pot- pull piles of parts out of bikes, and if they had a ton of options for what brakes you could put on there. They're just, they would have to stock way more things. The price would vary a lot more. So it's, you'd have to change your entire assembly situation. And there are companies that do that, obviously. And most of them um, who do assemble their bikes, like in the country, they're selling them in like us companies will do assembly in house when they're offering more options. Like Fazari does this, they, they offer quite a bit of customization and it's because they assemble their bikes in-house and they deli- you know they custom build each one for each each con- each customer yeah so. yeah we also often see small and medium-sized brands being able to do that like offer the flexibility but like you're never going to be calling up trek and asking for a xt derailleur instead of an lx derailleur on your bike it doesn't doesn't work like that yeah they've built <laughs> like thousands of these things and they're sitting in boxes already like they've already been assembled they're sitting in a box or on a boat somewhere and then you know, you're buying the, you're not, they're not building the bike for you in that, in that case. So smaller companies are able to do custom builds, um, but larger ones do not offer that. Levy, I like how you're bringing back the LX derailleur. You keep mentioning it. It's good. <laughs> yeah, it's like go to derailleur now. <laughs> it's coming back. I know. <laughs> you just wait, Kaz. <laughs> I was going through some parts yesterday and I found an LX front derailleur in my stash. Oh, nice. nice. <laughs> Palmer, when is the last time you set up a front derailleur? It's been a while. It's probably been only like a year or two, just like some, you know, some like one of my neighbors had, you know, their kid's bike or something had a front derailleur on it and that I was tuning up for them. But yeah, very, very rarely. I set up a front derailleur on my partner's curly bar bike a while back and it took me about three days. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember we have to like used to like bend them and like uh-huh. shape the oh, cage? Yeah, oh, and, yeah. Like, I could do Jesus. it. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's enough for front derailers. Let's move on to products that were trying to reinvent the wheel, but didn't really pan out. Uh, there's a whole bunch of examples, obviously. And in case you didn't know, I've definitely got a bit of a soft spot for people who are out there making unique and interesting stuff. But that really only should apply when the product also makes sense and offers some sort of worthwhile advantage. That's definitely, that hasn't been the case all the time. So we're going to look back at some stuff that went wrong for the wrong reasons. We're going to start with wheels. We talked about them briefly at the start. Spin wheels, spinergy wheels. Do you guys remember the disc wheels, the Tioga disc wheel? I think Tomac used for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're sweet. I also remember how they would completely unwind and lose all their tension. They're super loud, too. It was like going downhill with a drum. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, bah, they bah, were bah, super bah. cool. Yeah. Greg Herbald rode them, I think. Tomac, yep. Overend, all like Furtado. 
All to be greats. fair, BMX bikes were using injection molded thermoplastic wheels for ages, for a long way before mountain bikes were around. I mean, so there's some precedent there for these things kind of working. It makes sense. Why didn't this stuff work on mountain bikes, though, guys? I think that's a pretty tough one to answer. I mean, I think, first of all, it was rim brakes because rim brakes are, you know, before disc brakes came around, we had rim brakes and and the rim surface had to be aluminum or if it was carbon, it was like carbon road wheels came, you know, around at some point and just the braking surface is very tough to have like a good bite on and so yeah i think basically the the answer is like brakes and carbon technology weren't what they are today but i feel like we can make them today and they'd be fine to be honest yeah i would agree i actually have a set of one piece synchros carbon wheels that weigh like 1200 grams cas and they're like 30 millimeters wide or something i don't know they're ridiculous like they're wide they're super light the ride quality is pretty decent but I think if we go back and we rode some of those spin wheels or spinnergy wheels, well, first off, if we put them on a scale, I think they were super heavy. <laughs> they probably had to be to be reliable. And then an absolute shit ride quality is what I've heard. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I never got to ride that stuff. But yeah, I don't. I, I wonder how heavy those spinnergy wheels were at the time compared to. I know the spins were heavy, but I feel like spinnergy might have been more competitive because they were. Yeah, I think the like, spinnergies were more competitive for sure. Yeah, I think they were banned in some road racing and, and stuff, weren't they? Because they were dangerous. Those blades flying around. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I never thought about that before you mentioned that earlier on, Kaz, about like stepping through the wheel. But yeah, um, yeah now that you bring it up, Levy, I do kind of remember that like in road racing, because there's always so many like multiple person crashes. Yeah. If you stuck your arm through that and the wheels going, it would hurt so much. Yeah, that could be really dangerous. Yeah. I remember the shop that I was at, we did sell a pair. This is before I worked at the shop by a long ways. They did sell a pair, but I think they lasted about a month. And then one of the blades just like came apart and that was that. Yeah. There might yeah. have been a recall. I don't know. But anyways, both those companies, Spin and Spinergy, are still around. They're making wheelchair wheels and stuff. They yeah. make bike wheels too. Oh, well, yeah. Spinergy does. Spin Spinergy does, does yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. 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 Have you guys ever used a one-piece wheel? No. I never have. But, you know, I I think that another barrier for them is just the fact that they look weird. And people like sort of people yeah. seem to like a more traditionally laced looking wheel. Right. So I think it's kind of like the linkage forks thing. Like Easy linkage now. forks are never going to catch on <laughs> because they look stupid. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, it's a, and it is a popularity contest. Like, it, you know, people spend a lot of money on their bikes and they want them to look good. And if they don't meet like a certain trend, then, you know, they're just not going to, they're just not going to sell. Yeah. So you're saying those three spoke wheels don't look good. Well, I mean, it's a matter of opinion, but I don't think that the majority of people think, I don't think it like meets a certain look like a trend. Like it, it looks super different and it's very, very noticeable. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, like we were saying, like the ride quality has got to be kind of hard to get right. And the fact that they're really not mm -hmm. truable, like you can't adjust them at all. So like hopefully they would stay true forever. But if something goes wrong, then they're totally done. So Yeah, and serviceability, even with like modern carbon stuff, the what's cool about modern carbon wheels is that they're still made with steel spokes and brass nipples and stuff. And you can you can true them and, you know, they act, they, be they behave like a wheel does. So, you know, I, I think that's pretty hard to replace. Okay, let's move on to modern drivetrains, which are definitely not perfect. And tugging on steel wires, it sounds a bit old school, no matter how you dress it up. 
But a bunch of people have tried a bunch of different things in the past. They've never really worked out. I'm going to start with my absolute favorite bicycle component that's ever been made, freaking Shimano Airlines. So <laughs> when I hear Shimano or when I think of Shimano, I, I definitely think of them being a more conservative company. I think that's fair, right? Kaz and Palmer, they take their time. They, they mostly do things right. They're maybe not the first, but I mean, they, they make some good stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. At least in the last 15 years, 10, 10 years, they used to be like the ones that were developing all of the inventions. Like they have countless, you know, tech inventions in the mountain bike and road bike world. But um, uh, yeah, SRAM is more innovative these days. Definitely. Yeah. But if we go back to 1999, they blew my mind when they debuted a drivetrain that shifted via compressed air. So <laughs> Kaz and Palmer, have you guys ever seen airlines in person? I don't think no. I have. No, nope, just in magazines and pictures and things. Just, yeah, so apparently, magazines. apparently Shimano released a very limited run of this stuff in America for sale and you could find it online every now and then someone tries to sell their set I found an airlines drivetrain for 5,000 euros online for sale so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Robin if we can get it (laughs) it's probably gonna be no but this might also be the first downhill specific drivetrain back in 1999 little compact derailleur a seven speed cassette that was offset from the spokes just like today's downhill drivetrains and it used a trigger shifter on each side of the handlebar. Then there was an air canister that was strapped to your bike. Uh, hundreds of shifts is what I read. Three or four hundred shifts. So, I mean, it's it's meant for downhill racing. So you don't, you don't need any more than that. And you could recharge this thing just with a regular pump. So <laughs> the advantages, apparently, like DI2 or like Axis... You only had to touch the paddle to shift. It was more of a switch than a lever, which when you're racing downhill, I think that makes a lot of sense. You're not thinking about shifting. You just want to hit the button. But the other big thing, those airlines, they could be routed almost any which way, which back then cable routing was an absolute nightmare. Bikes were super funny. So there was a challenge routing on a bike that has that much travel. And and this is said to fix it. So there you go. What do you guys think of airlines? I mean, yeah, I love the concept too. It seems so cool, but obviously I think you have the limited capacity of the air canister. So for downhill, I guess it would make sense, but you couldn't have like a cross country airlines without a, you know, like a little air compressor on there to keep charging it up. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's, I remember seeing this and was amazed by it. I thought it was the coolest invention, but it's, it's, I, for some reason I was always confused as to why they didn't pursue a hydraulic system instead. Cause it's cause you wouldn't have to refresh that, you know, but I don't know. Maybe you need like a loop line. Maybe you need two actual lines that go like one, two and one from or something. Uh, but still I thought it would have been cool to see like them do a hydro since brakes are hydro. I wonder how close this came to, to making production. Like I wonder yeah. if it was always just going to be like a weird, strange thing and, and never going to be a thing or if it almost made it and they were like, yeah, never mind. Nah, never mind. They're like fully like ready to go on production. They're like, no. You know, all these all these people out there making 3D printed widgets and all this stuff, somebody should make a modern version of airlines. That would be <laughs> freaking sick. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. And now that all bikes have water bottle cages, they have room for your air canister. 
right? Yeah. And if it's an e-bike, you, maybe you could put a little compressor on there. Just uh-huh. endless shifting. <laughs> it's like, Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I can shift in four minutes. <laughs> you can change your tire pressure when you want to uh-huh. for the conditions, just the like Jeepers do. At around the same time, there was also a Shimano braking system that used two rotors per end. And there was like a, a sandwich pad set up with like three pads, I think. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. They were XTs, I think. Oh, not LX. <laughs> not LX. <laughs> Coming back, LX brakes. <laughs> Do you guys remember? Uh, I think there was like a radiator behind the seat to help with cooling. And I also remember reading that the brakes were so powerful that they were cutting grooves in the pads. Man. Yeah. I heard that they would basically detonate themselves because, like, the other materials weren't robust enough sort of a, a thing. Like, they were way too strong for their own good. That's cool. I like when people make things that just go too far. Like, we made these, but they're crazy. We can't do anything with them. I like that. But imagine, like, and like, imagine the clamping force on that, on, like, with with having, like, a sandwich effect like that on, I mean, it's, like, that's how clutches work. And clutches, yeah, <laughs> clutches <laughs> grip. control a lot of torque. Uh-huh. Yeah, and back then people were coming from V brakes, so go from V brakes to like the craziest brakes ever. That must have been a learning curve. <laughs> yeah, totally. Shimano definitely has some super neat stuff, probably set aside somewhere in their museum or in in cupboard somewhere. Maybe we maybe we haven't seen any of it, but man, I would love to try these brakes. Brakes that are too powerful. Yeah. How many pistons did they have? Do you guys remember? I was a four piston brake. Yeah. Four pistons, two rotors. It's the new e-bike brake, maybe. It's coming back. Yeah. <laughs> Screw thicker rotors. Let's just double them. Yeah. Go back down to 160 and then just double them up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then you can have two on two on each side. You yeah. <laughs> then you can get even spoke tension in the wheel. God, the upsides. Let's, yeah. We probably need a different hub standard to go along with this, though. Yeah, definitely. And maybe even a different you know caliper mount yeah. as well, because the, the post mount's just not good enough. <laughs> let's let's keep it on derailers because my second favorite derailleur of all time it's the white industries lmds derailleur that came out in 1997 kaz can you tell me about this thing it looks really cool it's just like as simple <laughs> it looks super simple like it's just it slides on two two rails um yeah it's like it's clean and it looks yeah there's two it's like it's hard to describe it, but Kaz, read the notes. I made a bunch of notes. Made notes. Oh, well, I'm just thinking <laughs> of it in talk. my head. Ah, I'll read some notes. <laughs> that was just off the top of my head. It's pretty uh, good. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I was right. It slides on two stainless steel rods on smooth bearings, and there's a single long cage to pull it in and out of the rods. Uh, but then apparently it was super finicky and never got to be a big thing. But the concept seems really neat, like just a, a sliding derailleur like that. Yeah, I wonder if it would be like better on the on like modern drivetrains, which are more precise. Like, would would that be potentially more precise than the like parallelogram scenario or no? Yeah, or even with electronics too. If it just moved it, like if a if you had a servo and it just moved it a certain amount each time, that seemed like be pretty cool. Cool. Yeah, that's that's kind of how the original Mavic Zap derailleur worked. Oh, uh, which it just basically moved the like jockey wheel instead of moving a whole parallel. There was no parallelogram at all. And that was, that's, I don't know. Should we just say, I mean, maybe that's a perfect segue to talk about zap that. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. That Can, stuff came out in 1992, which is 30 years ago. What? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and it, was, it was the first electronic shifting. And it's like, I mean, yeah, electronic shifting is more popular now, but I would, 
but uh, you know, it's certainly not mainstream, not by any stretch of the imaginations, especially in mountain biking. And um, it's sort of surprising that it's not like it's like how many cars use cable actuated throttle bodies and you know like why it seems so antiquated like everything how tech you know how amazing bikes are now it seems kind of strange that we're still like yanking on a steel braided cable to be fair that that zap stuff probably scared a lot of people from electronic anything (laughs) yeah i mean it didn't work awesome but you know i can't remember the name of the dude who like won stages in tour de france in like 94 and seven like it's one stuff and it's like it wasn't I think when it worked, it was fine. But a lot of it just didn't work. And and of course, with anything electronic, when it stops working, it's just kaput. Yeah. It also looked so. like it belonged on Batman's bike. It looked amazing. Yeah, yeah it looked cool. Yeah, it was very yeah. futuristic. Did, did you ever see it in person? Did you guys ever shift it or anything? Yeah. Oh, yeah. My father actually used to work for Mavic when I was a kid. Um, I'm a second generation bike nerd. Um, and so I got to see a lot of that stuff and he was actually working for the company when the second version Mechtronic came out and we had uh, a road bike at the house that was set up with that stuff and it worked fine. It worked great. It was awesome. Holy shit. Yeah. Huh. I had no idea. What do you think? What do you think kept it from catching on and becoming more popular? Well, that the Mechtronic thing was interesting because it was it, like they developed it simultaneously when, uh, cell phones were becoming very popular and they mixed signals. Oh. And so like cell phones ringing my would shift bikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and then Mavic, they'd call in. I used to, I actually worked for the customer support in, uh, Haverhill mass back in like high school and stuff. And, uh, they used to call in for customer customer support and people would be like, yeah, uh, my bike keeps ghost shifting. And they're like, what? the first question would be like, do you ride with a cell phone? Because you should leave that at home. <laughs> it's like, who, who, who's leaving their cell phone at home nowadays, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then if uh, I read some article where like, if there was, if you went by like a, a radar gun, it would totally like screw it yeah, up. It so you had to fully up. do like a factory reset. So if you happen to go by like a police trap or whatever, then you, your bike wouldn't shift until you fully started it over again. Yeah, and sometimes and they would you'd have to like do the reset. They'd be like, "So, do you have like a concrete basement that's like a bomb <laughs> shelter, basically? Because we don't need any other radio signals messing with this while you're trying to like pair your stuff or whatever." But it, I mean, like, so it used basically it was using radio signals that were you know becoming popular and just floating around in the air all the time, and that's why it was that was its main biggest flaw. But like, it was pretty cool to see in 1996 there'd be like you know, working wireless shifting. And then, you know, it took another, whatever, more than decade to get it popularized, even on road bikes. We should, we should probably talk about gearboxes while we're here. I mean, should I just let you guys take it away? I don't have anything positive to say about gearboxes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did see on a topic of gearboxes, not even just only slightly related to what we're talking about. uh, Someone I know just recently put a, so they have a, they put a 12 speed drivetrain on a pinion gearbox bike. So that would give you like 144 <laughs> gears or something. Is that oh, right? Oh, neat. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so really like, neat you have for somebody twist, else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have the twist shifter on one side for the gearbox, and then you have your uh, twist shifter on the other side for your uh, cassette, your regular cassette mm-hmm. in the back. Which I feel yeah, like. Yeah, I built they, a tandem once that had set, like a trip, like a, you know, three by 10 drivetrain on like a roll off or something like that. I can't mm-hmm. remember exactly what it was, but it was, yeah, it was another like nuts scenario. All the gears. I guess when All you're touring in Bolivia, climbing up a 40,000 foot mountain on your 80 pound tandem, 
it's got a freaking trailer on it. Like, you yeah. probably need all the gears, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Kaz, you mentioned grip shift there. Let's talk about grip shift, grip shift for a second. Yeah. I loved grip shift. Me too. I loved it. And uh-huh. then it Me went too. away. And then you guys remember it came back. I think that was, was that 10 speed or 11 speed that it came back for, Kaz? I think it was 10 speed, maybe. Yeah. yeah. It was, um, they, they made an 11 speed, too. Yeah. So there is an 11 speed now. Yeah. But we don't really see it anywhere. It gets no spec. I don't see grip shift anywhere. Why do you think that is? I think it's the fact that people, like, the style of mountain biking changed. Like, people were riding differently. You know, like, all of mountain biking was basically XC riding back in the day. And as soon as people started getting much more aggressive and, like, throttling on the grips more, they would accidentally shift. I mean, that's what happened with me anyway. Like, you know, when I was growing up, I was just riding, like, a hardtail bike with grip shift on it. It was fine. But as soon as I, you know, started, you know, going to the Whistler Bike Park and stuff, uh, you know, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I'm I'm now accidentally shifting all the time. Like, you know, trying to jump and, you know, get more aggressive. Yeah, and they still like they do still make it for twelve speed also, but now with yeah. you XC know, riders still ride them. Yeah, I think with the electronic drivetrains though, it's those shifts are just that much quicker. Like if you're at the high end, if you're going to get high end grip shift versus high end axis or something like that, I feel like most of those riders or racers are going to pick the axis just because of the the speed of the shifts, and you don't even have to adjust your hand position. Yeah, but there's nothing faster than a grip shifter. Like still, you you can go through the entire cassette at one throw. Yeah, yeah, for that. You can't do that with anything else. Yeah, Yeah. but the rotation of your hand, I think it's probably got to be. For sure. I feel like bike controls, not as. You don't have as much bike control using them. Yeah. Okay. I've I've got a question for you. We'll start with you, Kaz. Grip shift and V brakes or dual control and hydraulic disc brakes Uh, for the rest of your life? Oh, God. Yeah. Well, do I have to replace the cable on my grip shift or is it going to last forever? Because I hate replacing (laughs) grip shift cables more than most things like the little stupid dog what do they call yeah. it like the little the little spring the spring and you just wrap flies the across the, the shop oh, and then you like those... kink the cable <laughs> come on those were outdated years ago now they own they have like the little port in them I'm ever since not, you gotta, you gotta line on. it up oh yeah. it's such a bitch <laughs> I, I thought we were going for the same era like if oh. you're talking about grip shifters that were made during the time dual controls were made yeah that's what i thought then <laughs> they have a little port Oh, yeah. Well, if we go even back. Remember the x-ray that had, like, the, the, the clear? X-rays. I still have a pair of x-rays. Yeah. And they all just cracked because it was, like, the, the plastic didn't like UV light, so they would just crack yeah. and break. And, oh, yeah. And they got all cloudy did, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Did you guys customize yours with grips, like shark tooth grips and stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like oh, yeah. cutting the grip to be white good. shark tooth grips. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All this, all this talk about all these old parts, all this reminiscing, it makes me think that Pink Bike should invest in some sort of museum of some sort. Like, we should be buying airlines and finding a white industries derailleur and, and all this stuff. Where should are we going to keep it all? The cloud? At my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, start ordering it. In my it up. shop. <laughs> I'll come visit the museum. I don't have room for yeah. more stuff, but you can have it all. <laughs> uh, I don't have any room either. It'll yeah. just end up in a box in storage, but hey, I want it anyway. <laughs> Okay. I'll send you my collection of old shit. You got some neat stuff, it sounds like. Do you have any yep. Zap or Mectronic stuff? I have some Mectronic, not Zap. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk later. I also have like a fully like new in-box uh, 19, like early 70s uh, campy record group. Oh. Like new in-box, never ridden. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's my retirement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it'll last me maybe two days. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Let's let's keep it on drivetrains for a few more minutes. Hammerschmidt planetary crankset. Palmer, did you ever use it? Yeah, I did. Um, I thought it was awesome. Me too. Like, I kind of think it should never have gone away. Like, it should still be an option to buy. Why did it go away? I don't know. Maybe Kaz knows more about why it went away. For me, like, it was, I think it was weight and setup complexity. Yeah, I think that's what it was. It wasn't something you could just, like, it wasn't an easy plug and play. Like, you had to do a lot of facing and, and just more involved setup. Like, for your average home mechanic, it was a pain. And then if you're working at a shop and saw someone come in with that, it was, you just rolled your eyes because it's a bigger, a bigger hassle to set up than just a regular drivetrain i think it's the one by drivetrain that killed it big wide range cassettes means that we don't mm-hmm. need cranks that weigh like literally 14 pounds they were so <laughs> heavy they were heavy made a lot of sense for free ride stuff like how we were riding back then mm-hmm. i had one on a remedy and yeah it worked great the overdrive gear was a bit of a bummer i hated all the drag like i pretty much yeah there was, a, it was it was pretty rubbery feeling in the yeah. overdrive gear but yeah but back then, to have like a, a contained unit, you're not going to drop the chain. The damn thing just worked well. But one by drivetrains yeah. killed it. Uh, linkage forks. Speaking of reinventing front suspension, linkage forks make all the sense in the world, and you people are idiots for using telescoping forks. Why do you people? Sense? You're one of us. You <laughs> also use telescoping forks because there's no, no other I'm, option. I'm just joking. <laughs> I I don't want to talk about linkage forks because I talk about them all the time. Palmer, tell me why linkage forks, they're never going to catch on no matter what I say. Yes, you're right. They're never going to catch on. And it's for one reason and one reason only. It's because of looks. <laughs> yeah, and, and compatibility I mean, in some cases. Com- compatibility? With what? Yeah. Just like, like what? Like, no, you can like match the rake and like, what do you mean compatibility? Well, I don't, I rode that structure thing and it's like integrated, you know, oh, well, in that the bike. crazier. That's like full off the deep end crazy, but like, yeah, it's like a trust or something like that can go on any bike and that's a linkage fork. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah it doesn't yeah, work yeah. well, but they exist. <laughs> yeah. Like, or they did. Well, exist. they used, they used to R&D exist. Trust. Yeah. But I mean, it's like, that's the kind of thing I just, you know, they, they probably could have kept refining like. The, you know, the first versions of those felt really good in some circumstances and then very, very awful in others. Like basically anytime you left the ground and came in for a landing, it was very harsh. That's your problem. Don't ever leave the ground. Don't leave the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, sometimes they'd feel super smooth and then other times they would like rattle you like like a aluminum baseball bat sort of like right in the handle, you know, and is that that was a very disconcerting feeling. But I'm sure they could have like worked on it tuned that kind of stuff out and whatever but like it they just never caught on enough and my theory on this is because they just don't look cool like they look so dumb that and so alien that like nobody's going to buy them it, and it's too much of a you know like mountain biking is too much of a fashion thing yeah and, and they're the, so expensive too yeah they're expensive and, and it's almost yeah. like the simplicity of like a telescoping fork works so well like they Obviously, there could be always a little improvement. I, like 99.9% yeah. of the time, they're working pretty good. Dude, like, we just came back from field tests. We had three bikes with bushing play. You know what doesn't right. have bushing play? Linkage forks. Yeah. They but, don't have freaking bushings. Well, they have, <laughs> they, they can have pivots some issues. that yeah. can have play. Uh-huh. Yeah, they have things that could go wrong. But I, I think modern forks have a lot of troubles still that in reliability, yeah. I would say. I, yeah, I mean, definitely the biggest advantage in my eyes for linkage forks is the tunability, you know, via like a 
mechanical advantage. Like there is a leverage curve that you can control, whereas, you know, that doesn't exist on telescoping forks. But I mean, look, if, if, uh, the moto world hasn't been able to crack this thing, then we have no prayer because yep. moto stuff is, there's not a weight constriction. I agree. It's never going to happen. I'll, I'll, I'll keep writing weird forks though. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep trying. Just, backwards. Yeah. just ignore me. <laughs> just ride, ride backwards down every trail. See, yeah. Yeah. see if you can figure yeah, that out. That was it. Let's put it on backwards. It could have been the, the way to make it work. <laughs> Why don't we wrap this up with a few products that were reinvented and, and aren't going anywhere that make a ton of sense. Um, mm-hmm. The f- most obvious one to me, seat posts. Dropper seat post. They reinvented the seat post. You push a button, the seat disappears. You push it again, the seat comes back. Best thing ever, guys. Yeah, this is one of the best uh, inventions. I I mean, I would say that it's probably even more impactful than the single ring drivetrain, but that's a pretty close close one on that. But I mean, it's it's been able to, it's like led the way for for bike like design in, in geometry and stuff. You know, like our seat our seat tube uh, angles are as steep. They're only possible to be as steep as we now run them because of dropper posts. And that makes like bikes ride totally different. And and that makes suspension perform way different. Right. So like it it has knock on effects that it, it, that are way greater than, you know, even just the sum of like being able to drop your seat. I'd agree with that. And I, I might argue that they're probably the single most important thing that's changed on bikes in the last like 15 ish years more yeah. than disc brakes, maybe even more than geometry. And the reason that I would say that is because a dropper post lets me like do an entire ride, like flow through the entire ride without stopping, go up the things, mm-hmm. down the things, and it turns into like one more like singular experience. I don't know. That, I know that sounds corny, but a dropper post makes a ride, you know? Yeah. Would you agree, Cass? I would still get rid of, or I wouldn't get rid of my disc brakes in favor of a dropper post. Though. I'll disagree with you on that one, but... Like, I'd rather have disc brakes and no dropper than a dropper and no disc brakes. As long as you're controlling them via dual control, Kaz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, here's one. So have you ever put a dropper post on a road bike? No. Because I have. And because I have a theory, my like my thing is that every single bike, no matter what it is, should have a dropper. Even if it's a beach cruiser, mm-hmm. it should have a dropper post on yeah. it. Because even, you know, like you drop your post for for like a, a light or, you know, red light mm-hmm. or something. Stop sign. And and like I put I put a dropper post on a road bike and it it like made the descending way more fun, even just on pavement. You know, like yeah. you get your center of gravity lower. You can corner more aggressively. It's way more fun. <laughs> like. It changes the game even on road bikes, mm-hmm. uh, which to me are the most boring, stupid bikes ever. So <laughs> Easy I, think, now. I think the dropper post <laughs> is imperative. Do you hate road bikes more than you hate hardtails? You made everybody angry oh, last yeah, week. Oh, yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> I, I very much do. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you guys remember that um, FSA made a dropper post for road bikes and it had like a collar that you would turn? You'd reach under the seat and you would turn this collar and it would lower the seat i think it had three steps i remember ivan basso using it maybe but anyways for the same mm-hmm. reason that yeah. seems sketchy yeah. i don't want to be reaching underneath myself on a road bike while i'm descending that seems like a crash right away well they they got right. lots more time they got no roots and stuff they're just hanging That's out true i'd still crash <laughs> <laughs> um the other thing i have on my list this one's pretty obvious e-bikes mountain biking reinvented in a way like regardless of mm-hmm. how you feel about e-bikes Palmer, what do you think? Do you agree? 
I, yeah, I don't think that this one's even disputable. I mean, it's, it's changed the sport and it's not going away. Yeah. Like this thing has momentum because it's pretty fun. I mean, the, most people who are still against it are, I feel like for, as far as the people I've met, like who are still against it are people who haven't ridden one and experienced what exactly they are because you, you, I mean, we're not, we don't have to get into this, but yes, you're, you're right. E-bikes are, they're a game changer in a way. <laughs> yep. They, they reinvent the wheel. Yeah. And they're also helping normal mountain bike products. Can I say acoustic bike and make everybody upset? <laughs> Those Pedal. products are, are being pushed further because of that. We're getting stronger brakes and better tires and other components that are, should be more reliable. So even if you don't ride an e-bike, there's some upside to this. That's for sure. Okay. Yeah. Comment gold. Today, this comment was on the news that Italian clothing and protection brand Danies has been purchased by Carisle. Kaz, you mentioned it earlier, they're worth $6.4 billion. So, comment gold, Tommy Nunchuck says, Company you have never heard of acquires company who dominated the 1990s fishnet body armor market. Ayo. <laughs> Did you guys... Did you guys ever have a Danny's pressure suit? Remember oh, yeah. those? Yeah, just a top, one. but yeah. They're, and it would get like the zipper would get all rusty and turn green because of all the sweat. Yeah. 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 When I would, I'd go to downhill races and I'd wear uh, my shop jersey, but I would cut the sleeves off the jersey and then wear my pressure suit. So I looked like Batman, like super pro. Nice. Yeah, you felt Amazing. pro. Like when you zip that thing on, you know you're ready for something. You're like, I'm ready to go. Like I'm ready yeah. to eat shit so uh, hard. <laughs> I'm going to ragdoll down everything. <laughs> Uh, I got a follow-up comment, Preach, underneath the same article. He says, honestly, I always thought Danies was what people from Denmark spoke anyway. But I'm bum. All right, we're going to end there for today's show. Hopefully, we said something that made sense over the last hour about trying to reinvent mountain biking part by part. I feel like we definitely forgot to talk about a bunch of things, so put them in the comments below to remind us. And also... Put your questions down there as well, because I would love to do another full question and answer podcast. So ask us some damn questions, tech stuff, opinion stuff, what Casimir's favorite color is, whatever you want to know. Put it down there and we'll see you guys next week. 